This is a Federal News Network podcast. As the months tick by, more cobwebs form in the offices of the Merit Systems Protection Board. More than five years have passed since the board has had a quorum, and nearly three years since any members at all. Meanwhile, the case backlog of aggrieved federal employees keeps growing. Appointees to the board are awaiting a Senate vote. Nothing's happening. For what they'll face, should they be confirmed, though, we turn to the last MSPB member, attorney Mark Robbins. Mark, good to have you back. Thank you, Tom. It's good to be back. I appreciate this opportunity. And review for us when your term expired on the MSPB at the time you were the only member and therefore still no quorum. So my seven-year statutory term ended technically on March 1st, 2019. We lost our quorum in early January of 2017 when former Chair Susan Grunman left. So I was on the board for a little over two years as the sole member. All right. And I recall at the time you were working through the cases and making decisions on them, leaving them for what you presume would be a quorum at some point of two members. That's right. The way the board has traditionally worked is that cases come to the full board and the files rotate between each of the members, two or three, and we take our sequential turn adjudicating them and then pass them along. And so for two years, I was technically first up on all the cases and adjudicated them according to what I thought was the appropriate response. And then we put them into two separate offices so that the two new members eventually joining me would would have 50% of the backlog to deal with. So in the two years before I left the board, I had adjudicated about 1,200 cases of the current backlog, which is, I'm told, close to 3,600. Now, my decisions are still in the files, but of course, there's no legal holding to them. They might be persuasive to future members and they might not be. But, you know, if anyone agrees with me, part of that work will be done for them. Got it. So then when there should be members, if let's presume the Senate will get around to confirming them, they go to the work. So they'll find literally piles of paper already waiting for them. That's right. Yeah. In fact, staff was having a problem trying to figure out where to put the files Now, since I left, and thanks in part to the pandemic, a good portion of the MSPB's workload has gone fully electronic, I'm told. So I'm not sure that there may be 3,600 physical files sitting around somewhere. But when I left, there were 1,200 physical files sitting around somewhere. And those files are more than just one or two sheets each, aren't they? There's a whole history of that case because it had been heard by an administrative judge before it gets to the board for appeal, correct? That's exactly right. The files can be anywhere from a red weld folder all the way to multiple banker's boxes of documents, depending on how much evidence was submitted to the AJ below. You almost wish it was all paper just because of the satisfaction the new members would have of seeing that pile disappear. That's my thought, but I'm old fashioned when it comes to that kind of stuff. All right. So they will walk in, but aren't there also new cases coming in? In other words, what is their work likely to be like day to day should these members get the job? That's exactly right. So according to the MSPB webpage, as as I mentioned, there are about 3,600 cases in backlog right now. And if the new board, whenever it gets there, operates consistent with tradition for the board, that amount of cases would take about five years to process, just given the amount of staff and the the time that the three new members are going to need to read through these files. But five years is a vacuum because there are new cases coming in and the new board will have to prioritize, you know, the import of new cases with those that have been in existence for up to five years. 
And of course, the three members operate autonomously. The chair doesn't have a real ability to dictate what priority will exist for the backlog unless he or she can work with the other two to decide how they want to attack the backlog. You know, do, do they go first in, first out? Do they do whistleblower cases first? Do they take cases where the employee was dismissed as an adverse action? You know, they'll have a variety of choices they can make. But the new cases coming in, you know, if OSC decides that it wants a stay of an adverse action pending an investigation, that probably will take priority because it's immediate. We're speaking with attorney Mark Robbins, former member of the Merit Systems Protection Board. And we should also point out you were general counsel of the Office of Personnel Management, so you're pretty well versed in federal employee issues. And if you look at, say, someone had been dismissed and they decide to take those cases first, then it's possible that that person could have been dismissed six or seven years ago or longer by the time the case would have gotten to this empty office. And then if they take it up, then however long it'll take to get to that case. That's exactly right. Now, with that amount of time, chances are the employee has moved on and has found other employment, which of course will diminish whatever kinds of damages they can claim. But there are some escape hatches here to the lack of quorum. First, traditionally about 80% of all cases filed with the MSPB are fully resolved at the AJ level. And the AJs are fully functional right now. AJs can be hired right now without the board being there. Although the Supreme Court Lucia decision has called into question the hiring of inferior officers of the United States. But the AJs are working, they're processing the cases, and you know the 20% that come to the full board for an appeal, those employees have an opportunity to go directly to the federal circuit if that's the court of competent jurisdiction. Now, that's expensive. It also immediately puts them in a forum where they need to follow federal rules, which is daunting for pro se litigants who are representing themselves and don't. It's, it's easy to negotiate or relatively easy to negotiate the board's process. But when you get to federal court, it becomes much more complicated, obviously. And is there any way for the potential incoming board members to know which of those 3,600 cases did go ahead and go to court? That is to say, would that automatically make them disappear from the MSPB docket? Yes. My guess is the 3,600 already includes or does not include those that have skipped the board. One open issue when I was still there was whether a litigant who had filed with the board had already decided which path to take and whether they could undo that by then just you know pulling back from the board and going to the federal circuit. I'll be honest, I have no idea how the board's general counsel, office of appeals counsel, and clerk have resolved that. And if you look at this larger issue, it's largely unknown to the general public. And maybe to the general public, it looks like, golly, just a crazy piece of bureaucracy for dealing with a million bureaucrats. What do I care? But on the other hand, you could look at it as a constitutional matter and an injustice for one group of people that really perhaps the nation shouldn't be tolerating. How do you look at it? Well, I've got an interesting perspective here. Uh, clearly, the way Title V is drafted right now, the MSPB is part of the due process afforded to federal employees, federal retirees in certain cases, and family members. You know, there is a philosophical thought that the MSPB should not exist because all of Americans have access to Article Three courts to resolve their disputes, and why should federal employees be treated any differently? I would counter that by noting that these cases 
if you were to abolish the MSPB, you'd have 2.1 million potential litigants filing in U.S. district courts around the country. Those cases would have to be defended. The government would be defended by the Justice Department, by U.S. attorney's offices, and it would just bog down the federal docket. So we do play a role not only in adjudicating for the federal workforce, but we save the federal government a lot of money in what we do. Any final advice for your unknown successors that walk into, I just, I keep coming back to this image of walking into an office that hasn't been used in years, and there's a big pile of paper and a computer that you have to get the password for. What should they do first on the first day? Let me begin by just saying I have full confidence in the president's three nominees right now, Kathy Harris, Ray Lamont, and uh, Tristan Levitt. The two of them, Ray and Tristan, I've known for years And Kathy, I've had an opportunity to meet since her nomination. So I wish them all well, and I hope that their nominations can be moved expeditiously. In addition, my two former colleagues, last time we had a full board, Susan Grunman, Ann Wagner, and I stand ready to help uh, to any extent we can, and they would deem appropriate the new members. But the first thing they're going to have to do, and this has already been done by board staff, is get an idea of what the topic of those 3,600 cases are in the backlog and then apply some form of priority, whatever it is they want to do, and then just go about it. But, you know, this is not a staffing problem. Those cases have been worked up by the staff. Literally, the last step is for the three new members or two new members to make a quorum for them individually to sit down, read through the file, and decide how they want the case to be adjudicated. So all the staff in the world can't help that one individual read through those files. That's something they're going to have to do individually and get a good set of reading glasses. Attorney Mark Robbins is a former member of the Merit Systems Protection Board. Thanks so much for joining me. Tom, thank you. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader, and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person, personally, was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing We were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, And then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, As part of her job, she 
worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm 
fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.